Hey everybody, Andrew here. This is episode three of Fun Stuff. Today I'm talking with Colin Keeley and Brent Sanders of Vern. They're also a micro private equity company and we get into what it's like operating these on a day-to-day basis and just kind of have a meandering conversation of what we're seeing and what we're finding interesting in the space. They also gave me some good tips on how to do intros for podcasts which we then promptly uh, messed up. So without further ado, please enjoy episode three with Colin and Brent from Vern. I'm Andrew Pierno, and I have with me today, Brent Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's nailed it, Yeah, Colin Keeley here. Yeah, and I'm Brent Sanders. All right, there we go. And these are, these guys are from Vern and we're going to be chatting about Vern, micro private equity, and just a conversation about what's, what they're seeing in the space and, and what's caught their interest of late. But yeah, I know next to nothing about you guys other than what little research I did on Twitter and listened to a few of your podcasts. And yeah, I would love to hear your background and how you discovered, discovered buying stuff instead of uh, just investing. Cause you guys were both VCs before, right? Yeah. Colin, you can give the, he, he's, Colin's really the one that, that has, done the identification of this space and like really dug into it and so far sourced all of the deals, all two of them. But yeah, I'll give a a quick background. I'm a software engineer by trade and worked at a, sold a a, a software agency, a development agency I'd built for 15 years to a venture capital group that turned into a fund. Colin and I met at that fund. He was working through the fund and we actually founded a, a startup together. What? two years ago, three years ago, we started working on this idea around this company called Avocado. And actually where we started the podcast, that is gone by the wayside. It still is running on fumes right now, but we've got really into, I think it gave us an opportunity to work together, gave us perspective into what and how we can complement one another. And yeah, I actually, we haven't really talked about it, Colin. What got you into the, we talking about the micro PE stuff. And I guess we knew it was always around I feel like talking about Andrew Wilkinson kicked off a lot of these conversations. So how do we get into it? So we're at a venture firm. It's also like a startup studio. So once, twice a year, we'd spin up new companies. And everyone does it a little differently. And so I became a student of just the whole model and how everyone else is doing it. And through that process, stumbled on Andrew Wilkinson and Tiny up in Victoria. And I wrote an operating manual, basically listened to all the podcasts that he was on got that playbook down. He came to town, he was in Chicago, grabbed food with them. And he was like, yeah, this whole studio model is really hard. It's really hard to go to from zero to one, but it's like pretty established and much easier to go from three to 10. And turns out, yeah, it definitely is. Uh, so through that process, he recommended it. And then it took it to Brent's, found our first deal. And we've just been off to the races since then. Did you guys raise a fund before you did that? Or did you just do it with your own cash? Yeah, the first one was just our own money. Uh, this next one, we'll be bringing in investors. And now we're very much figuring out as we go. And as we're talking about on our podcast, Creator Stories. But yeah, thinking about raising a fund and how to structure it. And everyone does it in different ways, but talking with LPs and figuring out what works for everyone. Yeah, that's interesting. You brought up the studio model because I was head of engineering for a small venture studio here in Santa Monica for a couple of years. And we had we did we had money to do three companies. What ended up happening is like one of them was the clear winner, and then everything else just fell by the wayside. Even like the studio itself was like, oh, we shouldn't focus on the studio. We should focus on the we should double down on the thing. That, I don't know what your experience was, but like, what were some of the operational problems or problems in general that you saw with the studio model? Because it was it was tough yeah. for us too. 
Yeah, I love that you dove, you dive right into the problems because that's all they're, they're pretty much worth. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of problems, but no, in all seriousness, and running an agency is hard enough, but then having, so when I built that business, it was a great cash business, right? We had, at the time I sold, it, I think we only had seven engineers, but it was enough that three to four people working was enough to, to break even for everybody. So just half the, the team working, you could have people working on other stuff. And so I had dabbled in doing like convertible notes where I, I'd give a highly discounted rate, basically do at cost work and gain equity that way, or at least a note around it. My getting into that, like more formalized VC group where we were the studio model, it was around that same idea where we'd have portfolio companies. And so the thing that would afford me was I hated to do sales and line up new work and you know, I wanted to work on the projects and the upside of it was we had a lot of projects to work on. The downside of it is everybody needed everything really fast. It didn't have the budget for their appetite. And I was pretty strict about charging. It was like a cost plus model. It was, it was our cost fully burdened, amortized hourly, which still ended up at similar to what you would pay a international sort of offshore hourly worker, which, and you had them in your office. We shared space with everybody. Things that a lot of it worked to get people from zero to 0.5. The stuff that really didn't work was like their reliance on us is we at first were adding a ton of value and they wouldn't hire people. They didn't see the point in hiring somebody when they could pay somebody less. And then it went downhill from there. There were just big challenges with scaling that out and then keeping uh, paid work coming in, which was, that was the whole thing. It's like, you got to still have external clients to pay for these other people and balancing that was really challenging and balancing with sales. So our headcount ballooned to only 15, but it was still, it was larger than it, it was initially. And then we got overburdened. We were always doing at cost work. So we were just running from thing to thing and almost at times trying to, you know, find work for people last minute. And it just kind of became a little hectic at the end of it. It didn't feel like we were adding a ton of value. It felt like we were just grinding through work. And the portfolio company, I think the the smarter ones, eventually they grew out of being reliant on us. That was an inevitability eventually, but we did keep serving people and tried to make it work. It was just really complicated. That's probably the short answer. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys uh, bring in outside work to, to like fund? Because even at 15, that's a hefty monthly overhead. That's an unpalatable number at times, right? Just to, like, in terms of burn. Yes. So, uh, our solution was to collapse into one company and then go raise as that single company. So like CEO of the, the venture studio came over as CEO of the portfolio company. For all intents and purposes, the venture studio, that was the only way we were able to overcome it. And then all devs came to the individual company because it's so alluring, right? Oh, we're going to work on all these ideas. I have like idea ADD and I love working on new projects. We're going to have all this shared code. And I was supposed to be that guy. Oh, we're going to have all these shared resources and base projects that everyone like, no one starts from zero. And it just never fucking worked like that. Like after two weeks, they were just totally divergent. And you're like, okay. Yeah. The only basic part is starting the framework from the beginning. They're like, Hey, we're going to use rails or Django. And yeah. that's the beginning point. And even from there, there's just so many minor pieces that that start to to diverge things and move but yeah you know it was the i feel like between the founders we had the right idea it didn't necessarily it, i shouldn't say it didn't work because we still have portfolio companies that are continuing to raise and growing so we did launch some great companies that being said we're not doing it anymore and i do think we had the right idea on our shoulders like we could have raised more money but i think it was 
we couldn't do it in the, with the conscience of knowing that, hey, we're just slowly losing money or it's this is a dying game. It's unless we're able to provide services and stay afloat without the portfolio companies and have that sort of internal and external work, we weren't able to do it. And I think maybe somebody, a younger version of myself with more appetite to put in, I was kind of at the end of my rope. I, when I sold the business, honestly, I was done with it. I was like, this is a way I can continue to find a good exit for me, but also stay involved and transition over a four-year period. And, and that's kind of how it went down where I was just so tired by the end of that four years. I was just like, I, I don't want to fight for this. I'm just going to go do my thing. Yeah. Is any of that informing your guys's operational strategy now? Because t- two moves I see, buy a company, let the devs go, depending on how big the deals are, our deal sizes. But so generally like our deals are not coming with developers, but if we had a pool of devs, that would be super helpful for us or, and this is, this might be a little far out, but it's like Andrew Wilkinson esque take this product that is not profitable with three devs, put it in no code. And suddenly now it's, it's profitable because that, that kind of cost center goes away. Yeah. I think we're looking at deals where there are developers and we want to keep them right. If we can, if there's a, a serious inefficiency and it's because the de- development team's too bloated or there's a product issue, we'd probably pass on the, the deal. If there's a rewrite in the, if you have to deal with something like a rewrite or moving the platform to somewhere else, like that's not necessarily a deal killer. We have that with one of our deals where one of, you know, we've, we have two platforms we need to unify it into one. And so that's a surmountable thing. But I think the, the takeaway is like, we definitely don't want to build too big of an internal service pool and be billing back to the portfolio companies like that. I feel like it's, they should have the resources to thrive internally. I don't know, Colin, do you have any perspectives on that? Cause we haven't really dealt with that yet, but in my mind, it's a switching a platform. It's probably would get killed in diligence, but then if we have developers, we'd likely keep them and find probably other ways to make it work. Like for example, if a company needed three developers just to stay alive, but it was making money, you could pay for them. And there was a strategy where we could apply our playbook and grow it or, or 10 exit, then we'd probably keep those things around. But I guess the, the lesson learned from the studio model is don't have all these resources on the fun side that like wait around and have to be built back to somebody eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So I really want to become like the acquirer of choice here and acquiring something and firing all the team is not a great path to do that. So I don't want to become known for that. So like our ideal thing to buy would be like a bootstrap business, like a really lean team, really talented, super profitable, probably under investing in sales and marketing and keep everyone and invest in sales and marketing would be like our ideal playbook. We've looked at venture orphans or like these third quartile VC back companies so they have, you know, product market fit, they have customers that love the product and they just have like wildly bloated overhead and they're just burning capital. And I have a lot of friends in VC and they're like, send me some of these businesses. And we, we looked at them, we'll entertain them, but I, I really don't want to do that. I don't want to walk in there. It's a lot more work to deal with that. And it's not like a super fun day to show up and okay, we got to radically cut down this team to make it you know realistic. So maybe we pick up some of those companies like after they die and salvage them for their customers. But our path forward is really focusing on these bootstrap companies. Yeah. I didn't mean to say that we come in and and fire everybody. I just meant to say that we're acquiring stuff that's so small. There's one or two dudes or whatever, and that's it, right? And they want out. And when we buy it, there's just nobody left. It's just us. And so we got to figure out, oh shit, how do we write, how do we deploy this thing, code for this thing? And how do we run this thing? 
Yeah, we're much more operational in BlinkSale than I think either of us would like to be going forward in companies. <laughs> like, <laughs> as you acquire more and more stuff, it's just like unsustainable to be doing all the work yourselves. But we're in that position right now where I'm doing like the marketing, Brent's doing the tech, and we have like contractors and stuff. But we're definitely pretty. We're doing support tickets. I think I sent Brent like two today to try to solve. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not high leverage work, but it's also I think for these first couple, we want to. I, I especially, I don't speak for you, Colin, but I really want to get my hands dirty on this project just to understand where the points of abstraction might be. Where can we step away? Where do we need to stay involved? And so one thing that I'm learning with this is like design UX. And so the first thing we did when we bought Blink Sale is we emailed everybody and your Colin did. He said, what's the most annoying thing about Blink Sale? What, what bugs you about the product? And so we got a ton of great feedback and dovetailing with that doing support tickets is another way of finding out what annoys people and what do we need to fix because we were given this product it works good works great for some people you know, it's super sticky it's working but what do we need to do to grow it and, and the main thing phase one for us is like make sure we don't have a leaky bucket so yeah. i think this is i don't intend to get as involved in the next one but i do like the ability of getting involved if you need to right and that i think is part of it's a selling point but I'm hoping not to go there on the next deal and the deal after that. Yeah. One, and one of the things we're trying to nail down with us right now is we're probably going to do something like you guys are doing, just like a fundless sponsor thing, right? Just like raising money for a single deal, right? Do a few of those before we, we raise a, a formal kind of, but there's a number here where it makes sense to keep people on or like a company can sustainably hold one dev, I don't know, one kind of like CEO type person. Do you guys have a number in mind for like your minimum acquisition size? Because I think we went way too small initially. There's like, we can hardly pay anybody anything for any of it, unless we pull money from one to do something for the other, which we've done. And that's not cool either. It's fine for us because it's just, we just own it between three people. Do you guys have a minimum number acquisition size you're targeting? Yeah, we're thinking around 300K ARR is like the minimum. And Going up to 3 million ARR is probably going to be our sweet spot. Like anything sub $5 million acquisition price is less competitive, like before the big boy private equity firms play. Yeah. Uh, it, like the goal would have to have that directly responsible individual for each company. So if you had 300K ARR, you have some money to play with, you could hire some folks and we're not going to be the ones doing all the work. Yes. One of the experiments I want to run, I don't know if it'll be on the next one or just pool our current resources and do it, but I'm playing with the concept of a junior CEO. So I, I was talking with somebody who used to work at SureSwift and they were saying, basically you turn obvious knobs, right? Like conversion rates, like, all right, what is it? Oh, does that suck? Okay. Well, let's like tweak a few things and just get it in order. You're pulling obvious levers. And so going back to the, your like playbook comment. Could we have a playbook that somebody that's just young, hungry, doesn't necessarily have all the experience, but they're just running tests against a playbook, bringing back data to us each week. And they're able to make two-way door decisions. Anything that's reversible, they can make that decision. But like any kind of one-way door decision, they have to come back to us and ask about. But I'm curious if you could actually run these things with somebody that's, I don't know, paying somebody like under a hundred grand, doesn't have the experience yet, but they just have a playbook to go operate against versus... The obvious answer, which is if you can afford somebody that's been there, done that, like amazing, do that make that decision all day. Right. Yeah. We call that more like, it's silly to call them a CEO when they're managing like some contractors. So we call them like a director of operations or something okay. where they are in charge of the product. They're in charge of pushing the KPIs forward, but not really a CEO in any traditional sense. Totally. The only I'm abusing the term CEO because I think it helps with recruiting. For example, like when we would yeah. 
when we would recruit for a portfolio company under the venture studio, every job post would always go out under the venture studio name because like people would see the word venture and they're like, Ooh, sexy. I want some of that. And I think CEO would be the same thing. Yeah. And maybe you're having like 23 year old CEOs, 25 year old CEOs, but whatever gets the people in the door. I do think my understanding is sure Swift made this mistake in the early days where they would have a bunch of products under one person and some things will get neglected. And I think they shift their plan and now it's one product, one person. Yeah. So there is someone on the in responsible for each thing. Yeah. And I don't know when that jumping off point will be for us, but we have one property that we could do it for. It was an XYC company. And frankly, we did like garbage diligence and we bought like a steaming hot dumpster fire of a product. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, we might try it with that particular one. Talk about replatform. We've had to, we've had to replatform two out of the three and all three of them were in different programming languages and just 101. <laughs> that's been our experience so far is just these like stupid, obvious mistakes that make for really good uh, fodder for blog posts and Twitter. So yeah, I as mean, you get bigger. So I always poke Brent with this, but all software tastes like chicken is oh what God. <laughs> Robert Smith, Vista Equity says. So once you're with the big boys, you have a bunch of developers under you, you could do that. You could acquire all these different things. The tech doesn't matter, but boy, does it matter in the early days. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely does. He's not wrong. Like clearly he is an expert and knows what he's doing. I mean, he's a badass. It hurts my feelings a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious, one of the lessons learned, I think that I would share that you haven't really talked about is on all, a lot of these deals, there are existing tech teams, whether they're contractors or a part of the company, I would say so far our experience, like keeping the people around that were working on that know where the bodies are buried. That's helpful. But like keeping an arm's length with them as well. I just, I think that was the one thing with Blink Cell that we found is the past tech team, they, you know, really were so heads down on the, the product for the last year or so and have a lot of really strong opinions and they're great. They did a really good job, like full test coverage on everything, but it just, when we wanted to make some changes and I started talking about, would you guys be interested in you know, collaborating on this? And we just got like, so many opinions of this should be this way because of that. And it was like, ah, uh, this is part of what we're coming in with this new perspective. So I, I think that's one of the challenges. Like, where do you keep those insights? It's like, you definitely want them. You want to know who made this commit and why is it here and how is it going to affect things? But then also you don't want them approving or not approving pull requests or whatever, because they don't like something or it goes against their vision. I would plan on most of these is plan on those parties, just assume they're not going to be around. Assume even if they say they want to be involved, just assume they're not going to be around. And if it works out, you know, great. But if not, don't get your expectations set it. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I also want to get your guys' opinion on, on how you're thinking about, A, who's above us? I'll group us together. Who's above us when we go to sell these things? Because we, I put something on MicroAcquire, one of our three, just to test liquidity. What does it look like as a seller of one of these things? And unsurprisingly, there were just a, a shit ton of tires. And then the second question, I'm curious how you guys are thinking about like how you guys will make money. Are you guys thinking you're going to hold forever? Are you guys thinking about you just reinvest the cash flow and then exit in a couple of years? Or, or how are you guys thinking about how the fund will make money? It's a great question. Yeah, we've been really hung up on this. It's really hard to plan an exit at the beginning. Like we're just getting started. And do we want to plan for 10, 20 years out? And we talked to our former GP at the venture capital fund. And we're like, yeah, we want to do this holding company that holds companies forever. And he's like, what were you doing 20 years ago? Like, why are you even thinking what you're going to be doing 20 years from now? 
which I thought was a really good point. I think we're not really sure. Like I'd love to hold things forever. And if we start acquiring them, there's always ways you can do that. You could recapitalize, you could pay out dividends, you could uh, raise a new fund that just acquires the assets from the old fund or just the best assets. I guess the answer is we're not trying to be too prescriptive on like day one here. Yeah. Yeah. That our numbers are again, quite small. So maybe it's just a fact, a function of us just being too small, but there's sure Swift has like mailbox money, right? Like every month, like you, you invest and you get mailbox. There's just not that much cash to go around. Like after everything's all said and done with these small ass companies, there's just not that much money left over. And it's like, all right, sweet. I'm going to get 12 cents a month for 80 years and then I'll get my money back. Cool. That's not going to work. Most of the money is going to come at the exit. So I totally get, how do you start a company or buy a company and think about the exit, but also that's where most of the money is going to come back. That's where most of the fund is going to get paid back is when these things turn over. Yeah. And there's definitely a multiple arbitrage, like in this microspace, you could acquire for super low multiples. And if you grow it and it's a you know growing company at all, you could uh, flip it for a significantly higher multiple, especially if you hit like the next level where it's a bigger P firm buying you or like a strategic or anything like that. Yes. If you buy with that, let's say you buy from some bootstrappers, you put the team in place, the company is sustainable with that team and you package it as a real company with a real team and some profit left over, that becomes attractive upmarket from us. I could totally see that working. How, how small are the, like, what's the revenue of the companies that are doing? So the one that was in YC, they were just like on fumes and just about to close up shop. And you're like, Hey, we'll take this and turn it around. This one is, this one, I wanted this because I wanted it on our pitch deck to say like a YC company got burned out on a product that they brought to 65K net a year, which is something, not, not, yeah. not nothing, but not that much. Their VCs told them that opportunity they were chasing was too small and rightfully so for a VC model, right? There's the power laws again, right? Like they have to have an outsized return. Otherwise it just doesn't doesn't work for them. So they abandoned that product and went on like a product exploration for a year or two, think they had something and discovered that they could sell off these assets. And so I statistically, they're, they're likely to go to zero. Like they mm -hmm. found something, made it profitable. And now they have to go have a second miracle. Like I don't buy the two miracle theory. <laughs> I follow like one miracle, right? Like that your product works. And, and so we bought it because we just wanted to say, we bought a YC company because they wanted to go chase these big VC dreams. And that's cool, but like high likelihood of failure, we took this tiny little thing, quadrupled it and sold it in two years for, I don't know, whatever, some great IRR number. Yeah, so that's that one makes like 65 a year. Our, our run rate is like 10 grand between them. Yeah, so we have one that's, we've tripled one, that one's doing 15 now. We've doubled another one, that one's doing like 16 and the toy box is doing the rest. I, I guess that's the thing. It's like, so you look at these companies, like this is the fun place to play. The thing that I struggled with at the venture studio that I struggled with in venture as well as even Colin and I spinning up a company, it's just that zero to one is really hard. And, and there are certain aspects to it. That, to me, there's a fair amount of luck, to be honest. It's like timing, luck, uh, and luck is a, an aggregate of all sorts of different factors, but it's the way my head works. And I think this is coming from more of a pragmatic approach of dollars and cents and you're making more than you're spending. And this is, you can have the luxury once product market fit has been achieved to like actually worry about those things. And so that's my favorite thing about this space. That's my favorite thing about working with these types of businesses is that you're not like, oh, are people actually going to buy this thing or is it worth anything? And after spending so long on those questions, it's really refreshing not to have to worry about them. 
it does feel like a small miracle when you log into Stripe and there's like history and like money coming in and you're just like, oh exactly. my God, I was so foolish before. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, really nice when all your decisions like actually matter, like actually impact people. Because in the zero to one phase, hopefully all these little decisions make a difference. There's no promising that they actually will. Wait, how you guys think about like buying revenue? And by that, is it in your wheelhouse to think about buying something that's been like woefully overbuilt, over-engineered, so to speak, and, and woefully under-monetized, right? So you might be buying a small MRR number, but actually the opportunity that you see is quite large, meaning like the bet you're making is actually in growth versus paying a bit more for more uh, revenue. How do you guys think about that? So the way we value things is based on cash flow. So you're getting all that stuff, all the product effort just tossed in for free. And that's how we're valuing things. We haven't really looked at just acquiring a product that isn't based on the revenue or the cash flow. I don't know. Brent, would you ever consider it? Oh yeah. I feel like we have. I feel like we have looked at things. everything that starts out. It's, oh, this is overbuilt or there's giant warts on it. They're going to take a fair amount of, of capital to laser off to use that awesome analogy. It's yeah, absolutely. Like I think that's where we're trying to find our, our niche too. It's what is painful enough, but not too painful to get this cash flow and grow it. Because is there an opportunity in a new market where you could 2X, 3X or, or greater? I think that's right up our, our alley. That being said, looking at the diligence and if it's, this is a, a steaming pile and it needs to be rebuilt, that's where I won't go. That's definitely the red line. There's no reason to if we're going to be really rebuilding something, even if we have the, the customer base, it's generally like the tech diligence has failed and we're not going to move forward on it. Yeah. yeah, I'd say we definitely look at it and we like seeing that upside. But if people aren't trying to be valued on financials, it's like their expectations are going to be wildly out of whack for right. what we're trying to acquire the, you know, the value for. I don't know if you guys encounter this, but I find this all the time where founders will have an irrational just number in there. And so there's a, maybe you guys are just above us a little bit, so you don't encounter this as much, but there's a number in somebody's head that like they won't go below, whether it's based on cash flow or not. And I think a couple of times, two times we've overpaid slightly based on like just a pure cash flow model. But the, the reality is they're not going to let it go for 30 grand. Like they're just not going to sell it, even if that means the multiple is in line with the market. Like they don't give a mm -hmm. shit. They're just not going to sell it for 30 grand. So sometimes we'll have to pay like 50 just because like 50 is the number they had in their head. And that's how it goes. Yeah, that may be a function of size where 30 grand is just not worth like all the effort that they felt like they put in. Yeah. But at a certain point, it is you have to be valued based on your financials. And people understand that a little bit more. And I, I always try to make an offer and look, this is how we think we're going to get our money back in three years. And so if they come back with another offer, it's okay, justify that to me in reality. Like our goal is to get our money back. How do we do based on an offer like that? Yeah. Or whatever number they're throwing out. And the money back in three years things, we say too, when we talk that language too, but the reality is like that two years of money, we're spending it on shit, right? Like we're spending it on marketing, we're spending it on servers. Is that three-year payback period? Is that real cash to GPs or is that just operational cash flow you're considering that like the total value of cash flow that came in is now more than the, the money we spent acquiring the business. Yes, it's the second one, but it's wonky. It's like a best guess. And then you don't really know where things are going to go. Like the first thing we acquired, they had no sales and marketing, like whatsoever, uh, zero blog posts at all on their website. Like they had just the people sometimes randomly typing in the address. So it's hard to predict, like, where's that going to go from there? Once you actually start testing out CAC and everything. 
we'll yeah, what's next? So I think the the first thing is continue to grow the businesses that we have. Make some. We have one deal that we're have under LOI that we're hoping to close soon, and and then I think figure out the fund model. I think that's our big question, and I think for you as well, it's you want to have everybody wants to see track record, but also cash is highly available right now, and balancing these two realities. And and I think Colin and I balance these out each other out pretty well. I'd say, Colin, you'd have to be the optimist in this scenario, but I, I think potentially a fundraise in the next couple of weeks, months, years, <laughs> or but definitely some acquisitions in the upcoming months where we're excited to keep that going full speed how, in whatever form we have to. Yeah, exactly. Wrapping up the acquisition we're working on now and then raising capital and doing a lot more. It's the plan here. Excellent. All right. Great to meet you both. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, thanks for having us.